0: Autism, where affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome! This week we have one of my favorite returning guests, Dr. Gil Tippy, who is in California now. Um, I am going to put a blog post related to this podcast at affectautism.com and I will list all of his wonderful credentials. But you may remember we recently had a blog podcast with Dr. Tippy where we talked about the Dirty Hands Developmental Alliance that he's now working on. He also does a wonderful blog on WordPress. He just posted two new um, entries this week um, with some wonderful topics. And so what I wanted to talk about today, but first I'll say welcome, Dr. Tippy. Welcome back.
1: Thank you so much. You're really generous. It's always nice <laughs> to talk to you. You make me sound like uh, I'm some kind of uh, big shot, but it's really... You nice. are a
0: DIR big shot, uh, a <laughs> developmental individual differences, relationship-based, or DIR floor time big shot. Um, in the world of autism approaches, um, this is the philosophy, the approach that our family has embraced, and it largely was due to your guidance so of course you're one of my favorites Um,
1: (laughs) well thank you very much i appreciate it
0: so i I wanted to clarify for our listeners some things that have been discussed over the past year uh, maybe longer at affect autism and that is clarifying some dir or dir floor time concepts which we we want to stress today you don't have to know what DIR floor time is. We're just talking about how to interact with your autistic children to bring out the best, for everybody. Everybody wants to have smooth sailing and and everybody to reach their their own potential by their own volition. And that's what DIR floor time is all about. And there's there's some confusion sometimes because in the book, Engaging Autism, written by Dr. Stanley Greenspan and Dr. Sarita Weider, They talk about three components of the DIR model, where you have the floor time session, where you're having playful interactions with your child to move them up the developmental ladder. And then they have semi-structured sessions, where that might be a lot of gross motor movement, kicking a ball around to help with your child's motor planning and sequencing and and just in general, um, occupational therapy type things that we've lost today because kids are inside sitting at screens all the time instead of out on playgrounds, exploring, crawling, climbing and all of that stuff. And then there's the structured part, which might be something, it could be numerous things. But one example is maybe a speech therapy session where you have certain goals in mind and you have a more structured approach. And some people have compared that structured type approach to some forms of ADA Um and so I wanted to clarify that today and also I've done some podcasts with Jackie Bartell on sort of um some tools that we can use in in a floor time approach with our children that are very helpful so when my son is confused about something uh and offering him a choice it might be lots of verbal might be a little bit overwhelming for him so we might say do you want to have the blue one?" or do you want to have the red one? And even though my hands are not blue and red, just having a visual guide helps him choose. I want the blue one or whatever it is. Um, And we've talked about having visual schedules and and having um, ideas written down or or showing things. Uh, Christy Gozi, when we talked about small groups and floor time, she talks about having a board at the front where even if kids don't read, When she writes down an idea it's a way for children to track and see that their their idea has been placed somewhere and there's a sequence for it so dr tippy you and i spoke a few weeks ago and you clarified some things for me that really helped my understanding that i want to share with the listeners and you said to talk about the most recent point i just made visual schedules showing this type of thing We need them to get through the day. We might need to get through a dentist appointment, but that is very different than moving our child developmentally. So let's take it from there and let's have that discussion with those three components of the DIR model in mind as well.
1: Okay. Well, you know so much um, that you put a ton of material on the table. So let me just go back. Let me just go back to one of the very first things you said: is that people are looking for clear sailing, that we want our day to go smoothly, and that um, I actually think that that's one of the ways in which people get trapped into more um, applied behavior analytic interventions. And let me explain that. Part of the point of an applied behavior analytic intervention is to take some control and to get some compliance it's really important it's a central tenant um, tenant and um, when you fall too much for that you begin to see the point of all therapies as being let let us pick a destination point and let us just get there and if you do that always what you end up doing is making a situation where a person can't actually make um, thoughtful creative choices based on what's going on inside them what you end up with are people who think there is always a right or a wrong answer um, I have to choose the right answer in order to get the things that I want. When I make it an incorrect choice, I don't get the things that I want. There's no going back. There's only one way. And that forced fake, I got to be careful in the United States saying fake. I have to be careful these days. Um, those false choices, those false dichotomies are really One of the major problems with doing an applied behavior analytic intervention or doing interventions where you have to get prompted through stuff. So, one of the things that you said was sometimes you have to support uh, a child with some kind of visuals. And that's very child specific. I think it's really a very good strategy when it's necessary. Um, Notice that I chose the word strategy, it's not an intervention, it's a strategy. Um, So if you say, I'm going to support your uh, inner process of thinking about things by giving you some visual anchor, and that is specific to you, the person with whom I am currently trying to um, work or I'm trying to communicate, then that works. But it's a strategy. Don't fall for the notion that that's an intervention. The intervention that we're hoping for when we're doing DIR floor time, um, and we're doing any good developmental intervention, is we want to take what this wonderful human being sitting directly in front of us or with us in the room or wherever we're doing the intervention, we want to help them to take what's inside of them and let that bloom. And the way that we do that is by holding a space which allows them to have whatever processing time they need, whatever supports they need, in order to uh, do the uh, sensory processing, the sensory integration, the motor planning, um, all of those integration things that happen in your brain that are astounding and amazing, and be able to put out the product that you want. That's the result of your creative thinking. So that's the intervention ways to get through your day are strategies so one of the things that i always talk about when i talk about strategies is um when you tell a child a story about what's going to happen in the future which i think is often called a social story because that's uh how it was created it was created with that name but you know you're telling um a story about the future. Dr. Greenspan would have called that not a social story, but the thinking about tomorrow game. And, um, you say, okay, tomorrow we're going to go in the car, we're going to drive down this specific street, we're going to go to this office, it's going to be a two glass doors there'll be a person sitting on the other side of the glass doors who we will tell our names to they will tell us where to go and sit then a person in a white coat will come out and ask us some questions then we'll go in a chair there'll be a big bright light sometimes those are frightening you know and if we're trying to prepare a kid for a dental visit that's the kind of thing that you do you give them a story about what's going to happen in the future the reason why that that works that's funny, you're, I, I live in a fairly rural place and I hear a rooster crowing over here. So if you hear a rooster in the background, um, just just be aware, we have a beautiful sunny day here in Sonoma County, it's 70 degrees, even though I know it's on, on the East Coast, it's very cold and all over the world is different.
0: We actually have a mild day today, Yay. with rain and all the snow is melting.
1: Oh, you're lucky. <laughs> um, so we're 70 and sunny and there's a rooster crowing. Anyways. Um, So when you give somebody a story about what's going to happen in the future, it's your recognition that you are stopping doing a developmental intervention. It's your recognition that what you are doing is harnessing somebody's very good memory and you are activating their memory so that they can remember an event that hasn't happened yet. That's what a social story is. I want to harness your memory so that you can put images in your head of what might come in the future and i may even show you pictures of the dentist i may show you pictures of dentists office Um, and that stuff works because it moves someone through important things you know nurses on um, pediatric units do social stories all the time even with neurotypical kids they tell them the doctor's gonna come in you've got to get a shot if you don't get the shot you know it's going to be bad for their health so they have to get it so they tell them a social story don't think that that's the intervention and when you get caught up in compliance or you get caught up in um, um just moving from spot to spot and making your day better or easier um or f- to have it look easier then you that that's the mistake that people often make i always think it's brilliant um on the part of applied behavior analysts that the very first thing they do is get a kid to sit and get a kid to put their hands down Um, because very often uh, parents have had no success whatsoever with their children and are very upset and concerned and uh, when they see an applied behavior analyst uh, reinforce sitting behaviors and getting hands down so that the kid isn't doing things which look awkward with their hands. Um, Parents, even though they're not necessarily on board and they don't really feel like it's what they want to do, they see, well, at least my child is sitting, at least my child is capable of this. And um, I always think it's brilliant on the part of an applied behavior analyst that they start that way. The problem is, of course, we know, because we believe in developmental interventions, that that doesn't allow for the inner growth and the creative life of somebody from the inside. But it is brilliant in that it supports what parents um, so desperately want sometimes. I mean, how many people say, I just want to, I just need two minutes of peace, you know, And and that works.
0: Now, um, you probably wouldn't have heard it yet, but I did a podcast with Dr. Robert Nassif and um, you met him at the ICDL conference last month and you know him and you've talked to him. And we talked about this idea of parents dealing with ambiguous loss where it's in our heads that we have now some situation that we didn't expect and it, the grief is ours. It's not our child's. And we need to get over that and show up for our children and be positive and energetic and be the best parents we can be. And let's talk about that now in terms of this floor time, semi structured, structured activities that move the child developmentally without having these expectations of compliance and that more promoting thinking, promoting relating, promoting communication in a way that's respectful.
1: Well, if you all watching this have not yet accessed information about Dr. Robert Nassif, you you really need to. A brilliant man, a wonderful, warm, and generous uh, person who speaks so eloquently about this. And through his own life experience, in addition to his professional knowledge, uh, he's been a, I would like to call him a friend for many years, and um, just a wonderful guy. So you should take a look at that stuff. Um, The notion that um, the road to development for neurotypical human beings is somehow this magical uh, uh, yellow brick road. Of no problems whatsoever, where you can just travel it and it's a red carpet. I did change from Yellow Book Road because Yellow book Road actually has a lot of trauma on it. But the uh the, this this magical red carpet that you're just going to walk it and children bloom and develop and are lovely and delightful and always it's not true. First of all, uh human development is bumpy and um uh challenging and uh children are challenging and they aren't there for our amusement, they're there because we chose to uh, bring them into the world or we chose to be the people who take care of them um, and we are giving of ourselves. You get your needs met by your other adults in your life who you've chosen as partners and friends and that's how you get your needs met. You don't get your meet, needs met with your children in the first place. So it is always very challenging. And so for me, you know, I always say to parents of children who have developmental challenges, you are hoping and praying for a typical, a neurotypical 13 year old. Well, a neurotypical 13 year old is extremely challenging. And so, you know, when you have a a child who's made tremendous developmental progress, and then they get to 13, they say, I hate you, you're the worst parent in the world, and they run up the stairs and slam the door, remember that's what you're that's what you're praying for you're praying for somebody who begins to come into their own and realize i have to separate and individuate i have to push my parents away. um i have to see them as challenges to my autonomy and and that's what you're praying for so i i think when people are talking about the loss it's um i it's very real and i get it don't i don't mean to diminish it in any way shape or form i understand how um difficult it is to have a child with developmental challenges but the notion that every life develops in its own way and that we as parents are looking for the ways in which to support our child is the notion that i think um helps to carry uh, has always helped carry me through it helps to carry people through who have kids with developmental challenges because um, It's going to be challenging and our job is always as parents to find the way to create the best soil for our kids to grow and and the right atmosphere to allow them to begin to become these expressive individuals who aren't necessarily direct reflections of us and um, who have lives, which are creative and beautiful and wonderful bringing their own gifts. So um, I understand how traumatizing it is to think I'm taking a different path and my child is not necessarily going to walk the path of, you know, kindergarten, elementary, high school, on to higher education in a particular way, off into a particular world of work, which is set up in a certain way. But um, the people that I have known with autism and the autistic individuals I have known um, and I make you know that I make that division in speech quite uh, thoughtfully because there are people who wish to be called autistic and I call them autistic. There are people who uh, wish to have person-first language used and I try to use person-first language. Um, those people have these beautiful creative um, wonderful lives and um, perspectives on the world that are entirely different than other people's perspectives and their neurodiversity enriches our culture. So I, I, I don't think I think it is incumbent upon us as, um, as people who say that we want to help other people. That's what therapists are, that's what teachers are, you know, people in the social world. Um, it's incumbent upon us to help parents to understand that this is a path not identical in its particulars to other people, but it is a path very much like everybody else's path. It's just a different path, that's all.
0: Yeah, and it might uh, it might be slower in some ways. Our child who is ten and a half is more developmentally like a five year old. He was essentially a toddler for about eight years. He is finally out of toddlerhood. I finally feel a little bit more rested because he's a mover and a shaker. He's very energetic, and he's always getting into things. Uh, the other day, the dresser fell on him when he opened the door drawer and. Um, That was one of the first scary things that's happened in a long time because we had lots of scary things happen when he was younger. And, you know, luckily he somehow moved out of the way and he has a humongous, ugly, ugly bruise and scar all over his arm, but he can move it fine. He's totally acting fine. And he got over it very quickly. Um, Some of the things that used to really set him off don't anymore. He's much more communicative. He really is moving along that developmental ladder that Dr Greenspan laid out in the early functional emotional developmental capacities he's just moving through those capacities in the way that all human beings do and like Dr Nasif said and and you're both psychologists if listeners didn't uh, I didn't mention that Dr Tippy is also a clinical psychologist um Dr Nasif said that you know what we all want to do is we want to do the best we want to know the best way to support our children So when you say we have strategies like visual anchors and things like that, that aren't necessarily moving our children developmentally, they're strategies, let's talk a little bit more about, well, how do we move them developmentally? I mean, this whole website, Affect Autism, is about that, how we want to get those playful interactions with kids. But parents often say to me, I read all your blog posts, I listen to your podcasts, I still don't really know what to do with my child.
1: Yeah. Well, yes. So you're actually, but what you're opening is the topic of, um, how do I learn about DIR floor time or how do I learn about another intervention? How do I do it? And the way that you do it is you get support and you get coaching and, um, I'm going to be coaching a group of parents, uh, today. Yes. Tomorrow, actually, who I've already met with a couple of times that they're bringing videos And we're just going to sit as a group of people, uh, a group of parents, all showing videos of themselves working with their children or playing with their children uh, with me offering them support and the parents in the group offering support. So that's one way. um, And and
0: let me just interject to say that ICDL, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, I'm the parent advocate for that. And we have a parent online drop-in support group every other Monday. And you can sign up for free and attend those sessions. They're during the day on Monday if you're in the uh, Eastern time zone. If you're in Europe, it's in the evening, etc. But um, you can sign up for that affectautism.com under the events tab. And we do the same kind of thing that you're talking about, where we're, we're talking about our experiences and we're talking about a floor time approach.
1: No, that's really cool. I mean, I think that's wonderful, and um, and of course, I, I if I was on top of my game, I would have mentioned that first. Um, And that's a wonderful resource. It really is. So, and that's the kind of thing that you need to do. You need to get support. You need to get practice. Um, People very often feel like they can't play with their kids and, and, and they need to see that everybody is having those same feelings and that um, playing can be much simpler. And I, I do that kind of, um, support work all the time i do it in my private practice i do it when i consult at schools i um, meet with parent groups all the time i run parent groups and um you know that's kind of support you need you just need someone to say to you wow you really know your child you're doing beautiful work what if instead of asking all factual questions you decided that you were going to ask questions that you didn't know the answer to beforehand let's see how that would work i wonder if you could have some support and and that's kind of work you do so um, for me, and the way that I have learned, uh, I think reflective supervision is the way to go. That you do, you do some stuff. You bring videotapes to people. You say, "What am I doing?" And that's how you learn. It's it's not it's not as difficult to understand as an intervention as you would think. I always believe that um, I don't need to see parents fifty times over the course of. Of a year I could see them five times over the course of the year and support them in their floor time um, and support them in what they're doing and that would be as effective as me spending all of these hours playing with the child I think when when parents feel empowered uh, this is a parent driven intervention it's a parent supportive intervention and so it isn't a mystery mysterious intervention behind some curtain it is what parents in inherently Know how to do with their children and want to do with their children. So, I. And and let me
0: just tell the listeners as well that Dr. Tippy was the clinical director of the Rebecca School in Manhattan, which is a DIR school created with Dr. Greenspan's assistance before his passing. And you supervised a lot of parents and coached so many parents and saw the development of so many children over the course of a number of years. So, he knows what he's talking about, people.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, no, it, it works. And, um, I think the parent support piece is essential and it is a big cornerstone of the interdisciplinary councils um, ICDL of their um, training. They, You have to be aware parents can do this work. It is a parent based uh, model and it started with parents before it was ever a school based model before it was another model. It was a parent based model.
0: And. Um... I I did wanna get into a a little bit about the presentation you gave last month at the ICDL conference in California, um, where you talked about some of these, quote unquote, as if interventions, and just really driving the point home, because especially here where I live in Ontario, there's been a lot of talk about autism interventions because the government has changed the funding and they still haven't announced what the new thing will be. And a lot of it is still talking about ABA and most parents and families only know about ABA. And a lot of people don't know that the developmental approach is really the way you're gonna move your children forward to develop and flourish, as opposed to this compliance-based as-if interventions, as you call them. And, And I wanted to give you the chance to clarify what you meant by that and go through some of the slides that you presented. And I think in doing that, it will become clear to our listeners what the difference is when you choose a developmental approach, which really, I think I've heard you say, is, is just the way that we've, maybe you say it better, the way we've been with children for millions and millions, can you say that part?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, nobody ever, nobody ever uh, reinforced people in the way that applied behavior analysis does until 60 years ago when they started doing reinforcement. I know Thorndike at, at Teachers College did a hundred years ago when he scared little Albert um, and made him afraid of rats, white rats. But, um, but nobody ever did that as a way of working with human beings. The way people have always raised human beings is the way we want to raise human beings. We, they grow up in relationship with another human being. That's how human beings are raised. They grow up in the loving arms of other human beings. They open and close circles with human beings. They begin to grow with the support of older human beings who helped raise them. And, and that's been going on for a couple hundred thousand years. Um, and so this model has tremendous support um in the science of understanding human development.
0: Oh I just heard that rooster.
1: There he is, he's outside, he's <laughs> he's moving around. He's not yeah. my rooster, he's a local rooster, he's not my rooster.
0: <laughs> yeah I mean I think people forget and and I I know you jokingly said to me that if um we package DIR floor time and said this is the way that people have always always raised kids and this is how you should always act with your children is the way you intuitively act with them and it's not really an intervention it's just how you should be with human beings that nobody would think about it because they've been sold that you need to do this intervention this this uh rushed practice of you know drills and compliance and you know all of these activities and and 40 hours a week or more and 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 people think if they're not doing that their child is somehow going to be deficient and that's the the hoop that people have to jump through or the the hill they have to get over when they first get that diagnosis because i get the emails i get all of that panic from parents that have a new diagnosis what do i need to do i need to get my kid caught up before they go to school and and i need them to do this 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 and that and getting over that hurdle of no, slow down, get to know your child, interact with them, get to know the child that you have in front of you, not put some demands on them to meet some expectations that you have. That hurdle is the hardest, I think, for parents to get over. But once those, once parents get over that, the ones that come to the floor time sessions that that we do with with the uh, parent drop-in, they get it, they understand, okay, now i see when i meet my child where that child is developmentally they might be 10 years old like my son but they're acting developmentally like five-year-old acts once i meet them there once i take into account their individual differences and sensory profiles and i have playful fun shared joy interactions with them whether it's hide and seek peekaboo fun little types of games i start to see my child at his best
1: yeah i yes and i think that's a good jumping off place for beginning to talk about what an as if intervention is sure Um, so you said you wanted to put up slides are you interested in doing that
0: yes so i am going to start with the title slide that you presented at icdl although we're not going to go through the entire presentation
1: right okay so um I recently I've been really interested in the notion that um, I've been wondering how is it that we got to the point where something which is so counterintuitive is the way that we work with children that we've never worked with children in this particular way and now all of a sudden we're working um, behaviorally with children and I've been wondering about that and I gave it a good deal of thought I actually thought about it for about a year before I wrote this presentation and it seems to me that is because we're in a culture where you have to be presenting frenetic work all the time to justify what you're doing and you have to have lots of paperwork and i read a book called um i can't say what it's called because i'd be swearing but it's um it's a book called bs jobs and it was really an it was an eye opener for me that there's an actual pattern in different systems where there are lots of jobs that don't need to exist and that have come to exist purely to justify their existence. And that gave me, uh, I had an aha moment that, well, what has happened in our culture, uh, working with people who have autism or in the educational system in general, is we had begun, begun to do interventions that didn't actually help the people they were designed to help but were made to look as if they were doing something all the time. And so that's what that's where I decided to call these as if interventions. Um, so on a separate note entirely, it um, was the ICDL conference was on the week when uh, Greta Thunberg was um, very much in the news and we had student walkouts all over uh, to support her work on global climate change. And she put out a tweet that I thought was really brilliant. She said, you know, she, and and
0: those who have not heard of her besides living under a rock, um, you, you probably have heard of her, but if you haven't, she's the teenager from, is it Sweden?
1: Um, yeah.
0: Who, who is autistic and her her uh, main interest is climate change. So she's held a number of protests about climate change and, and um, motivated people all around the world to come out and have these protests and discussions about how to save our planet for her generation, because I believe she's 16.
1: Yeah, well, she'd been doing this for quite a while. She had stopped going to school because she was protesting the fact that the current generation of people in power wasn't weren't doing anything about climate change and was going to leave. Her generation with a destroyed planet and um, she just decided I'm not going to school anymore. I'm going to try to make change on my own and she identifies as having autism. Um, so she put out a tweet which said, I honestly don't understand why adults would choose to spend their time mocking and threatening teenagers and children for promoting science when they could do something good instead. I guess they must simply feel so threatened by us. So um, it occurred to me that her having autism spectrum challenges left her in a position where she couldn't understand illogical behavior on the part of adults and so it seemed to me that she had actually created yet another criteria for um that we could use to diagnose autism so uh, Greta's new autism criterion Is the persistent inability to understand how neurotypical people will persist in doing something so dangerous and counterintuitive that would imperil their lives and the lives of every living being on Earth? So, the reason why I started with Greta, aside from the fact that how could you look bad if you put up slides of this amazing young woman? But uh, the reason why I started with her is because we're talking about neurodiversity when we talk about supporting people into growing into who they want to be. And when we talk about neurodiversity, we are talking about brilliant minds like this young woman who simply cannot understand why an entire generation of people would destroy the earth, which they have to live on. It makes no sense to her. And it's that kind of thinking, the thinking that says, I don't need to go in the direction of every other quote end quote neurotypical individual i don't have to follow that thinking i can think on my own think differently and change the world on my own it's those brilliant minds that we're trying to support in the dir floor time model we don't want to constantly be saying here i am i see myself as neurotypical i am going to tell you who i see as not neurotypical how to think that model doesn't work. It's not useful, it it doesn't support our planet, it doesn't support neurodiversity, it doesn't support the growth of the individual we're working with. And so um, I chose Greta as a good example of that and I think it's funny that she just cannot understand how neurotypical people could act against their own um, best interest and the interest of the entire planet.
0: But I think many of (coughs) us neurotypicals don't understand it either. (laughs) (laughs)
1: To be fair. Well, to be fair, yeah, I agree. So um, I based this as if intervention on uh, the book that I had previously mentioned. And um, so I just took one type of not real intervention, and I called it an as if intervention. So and as if intervention is a form of paid therapy that's so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the therapist cannot justify its existence, even though as part of the conditions of employment, the therapist feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. I thought about this a lot. I wondered how people who are trained so heavily in, in um, certain kinds of behavioral interventions and who s- receive certificates in doing it how did they get to the point where they can punish people or uh, withhold um, attention or uh, not treat them as they would like to treat them how did they get to that point because they entered the world um they entered the world of interventions as good people trying to do good how did they get to the point where they thought it was okay to do some of these things that are that happened in other interventions and it seems to me that what happens is they have to convince themselves that um what they're doing is the thing that's the only right thing and in order to do that they have to really believe that any other intervention would hurt people and so they get to this weird place where they where they know the things that they're doing are not with not in keeping with the golden rule which is what most therapies and most helping peoples and most religions and most moral philosophies is based in the notion that you don't want to do something to someone that you would not want to have done to yourself, or uh, you would like to treat other people as you would like to be treated. Though it's both both sides of the golden rule. Um, how do you get to that point? And um, I guess the, the answer is that you create an entire system, which just says there's only one way to do it. Um there's a and lot of t- go ahead.
0: For for those listening, I am showing some slides from Dr. Tippy's presentation last month at the ICDL DIR floor time conference. And if you uh want to see it, you can go to affectautism.com and look up Dr. Gil Tippy uh for the um December uh Blog post about it, 2019, or you can go to YouTube on the Affect Autism channel where you can watch this presentation that we're, we're talking about right now.
1: Thank you. So, um, one of the big problems that we have in, in uh, the autism community, and in fact, in all of our children in schools, neurotypical and otherwise, um, and um, neurodiverse and otherwise, are, uh, is anxiety. The kids are tremendously anxious, and they're anxious because I think the society has made them anxious. We've told them there's a right and wrong answer when we do interventions which um, only support picking the right answer, which is uh, basically how a lot of education goes these days. You have to get the right answer on a test. It's how you're gonna be moving forward. You have to remember it. You have to regurgitate it. If you don't, you're gonna be in trouble. You're not gonna get good grades. You won't go to a good school. So there's a tremendous amount of anxiety um, driven by, you um, know, in, in the slide in front of me, we have the amygdala. And what we're trying to do is get kids to move away from this tremendously anxious position into a position where they can use their prefrontal cortex and say, hey, this is just a challenge. Like all things are just a challenge. And I actually have within me those things which allow me to solve unique and ambiguous situations. And so I don't have to be anxious about this. When I'm confronted with something that is different or difficult, I can simply think about it, use my abilities, and, um, and come up with a new plan. And that's what our intervention is aimed at. You don't get that by constantly forcing people to pick the right answer for stuff that's not going to lead to what we like to call thinking and learning
0: and just to give an example because every parent listening for sure every caregiver listening knows what i'm talking about when their autistic children uh have anxiety every single day so every single day when i pick up my son for school Where's Dada? Is Dada at home? Is Dada at work? Where are you sleeping tonight, mama? Are you sleeping beside me? Where's Dada sleeping? Where am I sleeping? He knows we sleep in the same place every day, but he needs to ask that every day and get that reassurance. And when we're driving and the light turns red, when is it going to turn green? Why are we stopped? Why are we stopped? Why are we stopped? When are we going? When are we going? It's just this constant anxiety all day, all day. And that's, that's just... A baseline and and that's one one point is it, it's definitely about regulation can he be regulated enough to calm down but then you're talking about the next step where he might face a problem like the other day when the dresser fell on him <laughs> that was a really scary situation luckily it didn't crush him and he somehow got out of the way it crushed his arm and he said oh I'm hurt And I was there to co-regulate and soothe him and and right away put some ice pack on it and determined that his arm could still move. He seemed fine. I think it was just gonna be a bad bruise. We didn't have to go rush to the clinic or the hospital, but he may come into other situations where he is looking for his shoes to go outside or I'm just making this up off the top of my head. You can probably think of much better examples where like you said, he instead of just getting frozen in anxiety, He can realize, okay, this is a challenge. I can use my mind. I can think of a way to figure out what to do. It might be at home when he wants something and we're looking for a toy and we try and slow him down to that point. Well, hmm, where could it be? We can do this. And he always says, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And this is specific for our son, although I'm sure it's the same for many parents listening. He always wants to give up and wants us to do it for him. And our job is to really scaffold and be right there and support him and say you can do this I'm gonna be there to help you and a lot of the times he can he can do it it might be simple as opening the wrapper of his Halloween candy that he got a few weeks ago Um, I can't do it how do you open it how do you open it how do you open it so it's anxiety 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 constantly throughout the day
1: so uh, you bring up a good um, point and that is that that sort of anxiety arises when you are using your memory or you're used to using your memory as a way to run your life and uh, kids who haven't hit certain developmental points really run their day by their memory so um they have to constantly ask about what's going to happen next and they uh, constantly have to reference what's going on and um, as you move up developmentally, you end up losing that, that because you begin to understand that there's a continuity to life, that there's a flow that in general, unless things are different, they're going to be somewhat the same. And and you, you're able to do that, but that's, that's a very difficult habit to give up. So even if you begin to move up developmentally and you begin to think creatively, you still really rely on your memory. So memory skills are great and they're important, but you can't run your life by them. What you want to run your life by is the ability to understand that each situation is new and and fresh and that the world will constantly be bringing challenges to you but you have the ability to handle those challenges and um, so that kind of anxiety is very particular to people with developmental challenges so it's a good point point.
0: And, and it's hard because you know we've been doing floor time for about seven years and he's still not there yet and I will direct listeners and in the blog I'll put a link to it um, the blog post associated with this podcast We did a wonderful podcast a few years ago, Dr. Tiffy, where you talked about this, moving children from the concrete to the abstract. And that happens right around the cusp of the fourth to fifth developmental capacity that our son is currently right in the middle of right now. And it's taken him seven years to get here where he is. It's a slow process for him. He had severe brain damage when he was two. Other children might move through it more quickly. Some might move through it more slowly due to other biological challenges. But it's the type of thing that can can get parents frustrated because they're wondering when, when, when will he stop asking all these questions and needing to know every detail about everything. What uh, so many of the kids that uh, my son knows that are autistic, uh, how did you get to school today? Which road did you drive on? Which highway did you take? And then what highway? And then what highway? Where do you live? Where do grandparents live? Where does someone so They need to collect all these facts to make sense of their world, and to get them into that abstract thinking is what our goal is in floor time, and and it has to do. We talked with Maude Larue a few podcasts ago about timing and sequencing, getting that all sorted out. And our son is really working through that too. And once you start to understand the passage of time and all these other things start to come together, and you can move into that abstract mode. So I'm going to reference that podcast that we did together because you talk about that in a lot more depth.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a major topic. There's no question about it. Um, I, I think there were other slides you wanted to show. So um,
0: Yeah, this book that you guys did about the Rebecca School, the case book for parents and professionals, um, I'll put a link to where people can buy that too. So we're showing the cover of that book right now.
1: Oh, great um yeah in, in that book you i i think i quoted a couple of parents will you show sure the next slide please yep so parents get to the point where they um they just don't know what to do so in the chapter through a shattered lens um i wrote um one of the parents said that we figured that ABA was the key to Helen's future. She hated it and became very angry and frustrated. She was a very frustrated little kid by the end of the year. And they they didn't like that, but they, they just didn't know what to do next. Um, if you'll rotate the slides. Oh, okay. So this is my favorite. Oops.
0: <laughs> Oops, go back. How do I go back here? Okay. Um,
1: um, so, if you run that in a slideshow, okay, so don't hit it again. So this is an X and Y axis, and I drew this out, a friend of mine asked me, can you explain how an ABA intervention hurts a kid if you're doing DIR floor time? So I drew out this graph, so uh, let's label the graph, so hit your, there's age on the, and typical development, right? So as you move up you are developing typically and there's age and so by just by definition if you're a typical developer every year of age equals one year of development so you have a 45 degree angle there so next one Um, and so hit the hit it again so that's by four years old hit it again you should probably be at functional emotional developmental capacity six. And that's the level you would have to be at in the United States to enter a nursery school or a kindergarten. You'd be able to sit in a chair, listen to what a teacher has to say, add it to what's in your own brain and put out a third thing, which is the product of those two things, a collaboration in your brain between the teacher and you that's FEDC six. So hit it again, please. So, and that's 21 years. All right, wait one sec. And this line that just appeared down below that 45-degree line heading off to the right of the screen, that's the um, what our children may be doing. So they may not get to FEDC6 until they're 21 years old. It's possible. They may be on that. Uh, pathway. So we're working developmentally with them, we're working, 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 we want to get them to FEDC-6. Once they get to FEDC-6, they certainly are capable of going to college and doing any uh, typical job. And then hit it again, hit the, hit your, there we go, that red line that appeared just there is an ABA intervention. And what an ABA intervention does, if you prompt someone or punish them, is it knocks them back developmentally so that they drop back down to functional emotional developmental capacity three, which is the level where you respond in open and closed simple circles. And so that's what that intervention does to you. So if you do that, look where the line now takes you. Hit the next one, please.
0: So we're now looking at a, a, a flatter slope. so that the development is taking longer.
1: So now it may take you to 25 years to get to FEDC6. So would you hit it again? So what if you do another um, punishing uh, intervention or another applied behavior analytic intervention? Now hit it again and again. So maybe you don't get to FEDC6 until you're 30 years old. So it's really, really damaging to do prompting or punishing interventions if you're working developmentally because all you're doing is delaying people's development um and yes it may seem like you've just got to do it and certainly i would do it in the case of dangerous behaviors self-injurious behaviors life-threatening things i would i would absolutely stop people from doing that there's no question i don't i'm not someone who would say you know take risks with people but i do think that if you do it Um, what you are doing is agreeing to set people back.
0: Now, Dr. Tippy, what you're saying is quite controversial because 99.9% of all professionals out there say that autistic kids need ABA. And you're saying actually, in fact, what ABA does is slow down their development.
1: Um, Well, it may be controversial in that people have signed on to a certain way of working and 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 uh, large organizations have been built up around this way of getting things done but there are a lot of practices in the history of interventions medical and otherwise that in retrospect are absolutely damaging and, and absurd and i do think it is damaging and It's clear to me that humans develop in a certain way and that you are doing, um, in some cases, a great deal of damage when you do an applied behavior analytic intervention. At the very worst, at the very least, you're wasting people's time um, when you do that because you could be spending time actually helping people grow and develop into the kind of human beings that they could be based on what they've got inside. Um, and yet,
0: governments are spending thousands and millions on ABA interventions. Which I agree with everything you say. I'm I'm just trying to make a point, and I have an example that is a very kind of silly example, but I think it illustrates the point that you're trying to make. It's it's a simple example that doesn't um, encapsulate the the seriousness of what you're saying. But I hope you can take this example and extrapolate from it my son um has picked up a behavior and i'm guessing it's from someone at school but i don't know but every now and then just out of the blue uh watch your ears people if you're listening because i'm about to scream so he'll just be sitting around and all of a sudden he'll go ah! like at the top of his lungs so i'm driving to school and he just screams at the top of his lungs now luckily i have the same sensory profile as my son so it doesn't phase me that much but someone who might be a little more jumpy might be like, ah, and, like, crash the car, right? Because it's really startling. And so um, he, he somehow, I think, is, is interacting with a child who screams periodically. And so he just decides to scream now and then. So what did I decide to do? <laughs> the brilliant mother that I am, I'm being sarcastic, um, he likes listening to his PJ Masks songs. In the car when we're alone together and and on the weekend we're driving to go see some Christmas model trains or whatever we're doing and we're playing PJ masks so I decided that when he screamed I'm gonna turn the music off and so that's a very behavioral intervention isn't it dr. (laughs) tippy
1: well uh, it's it's behavioral but Interventions are behavioral in general. What we're, what I'm complaining most about is an applied behavior analytic intervention. And okay, well, so well. when I'm annoyed with you and you make me angry, I act in certain ways is not a behavioral intervention. It's, okay. hey, you can't treat me like that. You I, that's really awful. Stop screaming is not a behavioral intervention. It's not. I mean okay, uh, the so, so behavior analytical. you know what
0: this is great this we're going to make the distinction between this because i I want to tell you what happened, which is quite amusing, and then I want to say that I want to see how you can extrapolate that to what behaviors do, and then I love the point that you made that of course we're going to be annoyed if our kids do behaviors like slap us in the face or kick us or hurt us, and yes we're going to say to stop, but what I did was I turned the music off, and so you said. Turn it back on, turn it back on. I want to hear PJ Masks. Turn it back on. I said, okay, in a minute. But remember, we don't scream in the car. So then a minute, left, I said, when we get to that street and we turn, I'll turn the music back on. So then we get to that street, we turn. I turn the music back on. Maybe ten minutes later, he screams again. So right away, I turn the music off, and he's like, No! I I should never scream in the car. I will. No, I can never scream. I can never scream. I won't scream in the car. I said sweetie don't scream it scares mama you know that it scares It startles me i don't want to get in an accident i want the music back on okay when we get to the street in a little while okay so i did it a few times so that's fine the next day we're going to another um train show or something and this time my husband's in the car with us and the day before when we were coming home We had gone to see Christmas trains on the opening day. It's the first time we've talked about Christmas all season. I said, do you want to hear Christmas songs tomorrow? Because they were singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He stopped what he was doing, and he was staring at the choir, the little quartet, because he recognized that song from last year. And I said, oh, do you want me to put your Christmas songs on the playlist for tomorrow? Yes. So I didn't have time to look up those Christmas songs that we've always listened to every year. I picked some random kids' Christmas album. So we're going in the car the next day, and I play it, and he doesn't like it. And see, I don't like this, next song. So I turn it. I don't like it, next song. Meanwhile, his dad and I are trying to have a conversation, and we kind of got sick of him telling us to change a song every second. So I said, no, sweetie, we're just going to listen to the Christmas song. So he goes, ah, and screams.
1: (laughs) That's actually funny. Isn't Um, that
0: brilliant? (laughs) Well,
1: yeah and, and so i guess you didn't teach the right lesson did you what you I taught that? him
0: that if he wants to turn the music off he exactly
1: screams. and and that is the lesson that you learn in applied behavior analysis i agree entirely okay um, that's so a point i wanted to, to make you're entirely right i mean um I, we're gonna probably end soon um so let me tell a little story like that um Let's Can we skip all the way to the last slide, probably, and we'll, we'll end up. But um, a woman loved to drive down the middle of the town, an older woman, with her cat in the front seat on Sundays. It was one of her favorite things. Um, and she also loved the birds in her town. So she would park her car out in her yard, and on Sundays she would clean it up and put the cat in the front seat, and they would, they would drive down the street. And they would, um, they felt she, it was really one of her favorite things to do, but the cat also liked to eat the birds that she was attracting. And the cat would jump up on the car and go to the bird feed and use that as access to the bird feeder. And the woman just hated that. So a friend said, hide in the car. And when the cat jumps up on the hood of the car, right before the cat goes and, um, And eats the birds, just lay on the horn and scare the cat. And and so the woman did, hid in the car, and she waited, the cat jumped up on the hood, was going up to um, attack the birds, and she laid on the horn, scared the cat, the cat cat ran, and it entirely worked. The cat never again um, attacked the birds at the bird feeder, but the cat also never rode again in the car with the woman on Sunday afternoons. And that's the problem, right the, the problem is it always has a negative consequence you you do you're going to achieve a certain thing, but you're going to achieve certain other things that you didn't want and your your example is good, and that's just the truth. So why not do an intervention where um, the worst thing that happens is that you have this loving, wonderful back and forth with your child? as opposed to things which have all these disastrous fallouts, long-term effects which are negative, um, um, the result resulting in someone who doesn't have a notion that they're allowed to have a creative thought in their head, doesn't have a notion that those creative thoughts then give them a chance to have action that they can create, never allows them to understand that there are ambiguous situations which you you are perfectly capable of solving, sees everything that happens to them as a disaster, doesn't think they can solve anything, you know, why, why do that? Why not instead have an intervention where you can feel warm and connected with your child and also support them in becoming this beautiful individual that they're going to be, that they're destined to be with the correct support. And that's what parents want. I just don't think, um, I don't think I would risk everything for compliance. I just wouldn't. It it doesn't seem to me like a good trade-off.
0: Yeah. And if, if listeners, if you like what you're hearing. I've done a number of podcasts with Dr. Tippy, where he has talked about some of these things in much greater depth. Um, you can link to those through the post that I'll do with this podcast today at affectautism.com. Look up December 2019 posts, and you'll see the one with Dr. Tippy. Thank you, Dr. Tippy, as always for for coming here and just laying out um, an overview of. Of what's important and what we want to establish with our children. We want to have loving, supportive relationships. And in doing that, development happens.
1: Well, you know that I would come anytime and that I would talk for a million hours. And um, it's a delight to be here always and to be in a place where people understand that human beings deserve to be treated respectfully, um, and deserve to be supported. Deserve to be um, understood to have ideas that are at least as good as our ideas. Um, it, it's wonderful to be here. And
0: and I will say for those that are still hanging about, well, what about when our kids aren't treating us respectfully? What about when they are screaming, kicking, spitting? And I will say that we did a podcast about setting limits at appropriate developmental levels with Dr. Tippy that you can link back to and listen because he addresses all of those questions.
1: Well, thank you so much, (laughs) it's really really nice to be here.
0: Well, thank you Dr. Tippy and hope you'll come back again soon. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.